We at the WBDC dedicate our Raising Up the Vote campaign and Make Your Mark podcast series in memory of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a woman whose legacy for justice, equity, and women's rights lives on. Raise your hands up! Raise them up! Welcome to the Make Your Mark podcast series, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Women, Voting, and Equality, a WBDC interview series where influential women share their glass ceiling stories, how they fought for their voice and rights, became civically engaged, and changed the status quo. In today's episode, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Equity in Education, we'll explore how equity and access to education are critical in creating a pathway to social, political, and economic mobility for women and communities of color. Today, we are so fortunate to be joined by Arnie Duncan, former United States Secretary of Education and a current Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brown Center for Education Policy at the Brookings Institution. We're also joined by Joan Gable, the 17th president of the University of Minnesota and the first woman to hold that position. And we are joined by Juan Salgado, chancellor of City Colleges of Chicago. And I also have to add that he was also a 2015 MacArthur Fellow, which in my mind is one of the greatest recognitions for innovation in this country. I'm Laura Bloomberg. I'm the Dean of the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, and I will be your host for today's conversation. Uh, just before we started this podcast, we all had a conversation and agreed that I would use first names. So I want you to know I will be referring to all of these esteemed scholars and practitioners by their first name, not as a sign of disrespect, but probably as a sign of efficiency in this podcast. Um, so Arnie, let's start with you. Um, As you reflect on your own leadership journey and the impact you've been able to make on education policy, your path to becoming Secretary of of Education in the Obama administration, was there a formative moment or a series of moments or experiences that made you the leader you are today? And before you jump in, let me also just say on a personal note, I happened to see the tweet you posted a day or so ago about your daughter heading to college, and I've got to think that that's got to have a huge impact on you right now, so you might want to say something about that, too. Over to you, Arnie. You're, you're trying to make me cry to start this thing. That's not a good thing to do. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a, our eldest, yeah, we dropped to college uh, yesterday, actually, so it's uh, sons of junior in high school, and it's definitely a moment of transition. It's a, it's a wonderful time. It's a, it's a blessing that she has an opportunity to actually go to a physical campus, and hope that hope that sticks. We'll see, but it's it's uh, you wonder where the time went. I'll, I'll say that, and so it's definitely generating lots of emotions for, for my wife and I. That, that's real. Um, in, ter- in terms of leadership journey or whatever, it's a, it's a funny thing. I'm, I'm never one for never a good one to give career advice. It was never my aspiration to be a secretary of education. I think most of my life I didn't know that job existed. Um, wanted to do 10, 10 years in Chicago as a superintendent here. There's so much turnover in superintendency and. Honestly, went to D.C. not for the job, not for the title, but just because I happen to believe so much in what President Obama stood for and, you know, what education meant to him and to his wife. And they were personal friends, they were professional friends. But for me, the formative moments actually go back to my earliest, earliest years. I grew up um, on the campus of the University, uh, University of Chicago. My daddy was a professor here. I lived two blocks from where I, where I grew up. It's, it's great to be back home here. And uh, that was a heavy influence, uh, but honestly, probably a stronger influence is my mother ran an 
after school tutoring program in the inner city, which was given how segregated Chicago is, was like 12 blocks from where we live. And uh, we used to walk there some days and just seeing the tremendous inequities between what my friends had during the day and what my friends had in the afternoon was, was, was formative. And my sister and brother and I have all tried to follow my mother's footsteps. She did the work for like 52 years until her health gave out. And unfortunately, she has Alzheimer's now. But we just saw all our life what kids who happen to be poor and happen to not have the most put together families always and happen to all be black and happen to live in a violent neighborhood. We saw what they could accomplish when they had extraordinary people in their lives, like my mother and others. And just trying to create those kinds of opportunities in that community and in Chicago and then ultimately around the country. Just try to draw on all those experiences growing up every day as part of our program. Thank you. There's something really powerful about the multi-generational nature of your your story there, from your daughter to your mother and in between. Joan Gable, your leadership journey and the a moment or an experience that has shaped you as a leader today? Well, before I chime in, I have to say I just dropped my youngest off in college, um, and he is on campus having an experience rather different from what I think any of us imagined uh, freshman year experiences would be like. But we are, that's bittersweet too, the first one and the last one, sort of a bookend. But I'm very lucky in the sense that My father worked for the federal government. We moved a lot. So I entered school many times anew when I was in elementary school, different environments, public school, Catholic school in different neighborhoods and developed this sort of intuition, I think, long before I realized what it was. In fact, I don't even know if I realized what it was until I was an adult of how important it is to understand your environment, how to adapt, what you need in order to be successful before I even knew what success meant other than maybe passing a test or getting a grade. And when I reflect back on that now and think about how incredibly lucky I was that even though moving schools is an interesting challenge, that I had a supportive family at home and I had older siblings and younger siblings and all of the comforts that one would need in order to be a successful student. And yet it was very hard, right? As one knows that moving is. And then to see later in life, largely through the eyes of my husband, who is a K through 12 teacher and principal administrator before doing what he does now, predominantly in Title I schools and see what that's like through adult eyes and realize that adaptability, access to opportunity, support, how widely varied that is. I didn't know until later in life how fundamentally different access to opportunity is. And Arnie was able to see it in childhood. I I thought I saw everything by virtue of having moved around the country and changed schools frequently as a child. And I actually saw nothing at all in, in the grand scheme of the range of opportunity. And then you understand it theoretically. I never saw it until my husband was working in schools that represented um, a much more composition of the communities and societies that we serve. And so I had my aha moment a lot later for someone who had had a lot of life experience and, and it informs literally everything that we do today. It's really powerful to think about the um, personal professional connection that things that happen in our lives to us as human beings, not just in our roles professionally, have powerful impacts on how we think about leadership. Juan, what's your story or what moments or experiences have shaped you and your leadership? It's, it's interesting to hear Joan speak about moving a lot. I actually uh, lived in the same home 
for nearly 20 years since the time I was born. And but one thing that did change was the neighborhood around me. Always a small Latino community, enough to have a Spanish mass, but it was a white community that turned to an African-American community in a matter of two or three years. My older sisters grew up in a white community. I literally grew up in a black community. I think that's had a profound impact on the way I look at the world. I saw and felt racism uh, up front and close, not so much from the kids, but just from the broader environment as a whole. Uh, was taught that it wasn't the right way to think and act in the world and uh, have been trying to do something about it. I was really inspired. I spent in college a couple of years. I'm a community college graduate, by the way. It's important to note as a chancellor. <laughs> uh, all six of my siblings, all community college graduates, everything from a child care certificate to bachelor's and master's degree holders. It was the only way we can all get an education versus one of us get an education. But the real formative thing for me was a couple of years volunteering while I was getting a graduate degree in East St. Louis, Illinois, and seeing in the midst of some of the most challenging circumstances, even more challenging from what I had grown up in, people with hope and belief and possibility, people that were hanging in there knowing that they could make something better of whatever circumstances were around them. And whatever professional work I'm doing today, it's all related to tapping into that and helping others to tap into that and making sure that we as communities and society tap into that, not for some of us, but uh, for all of us. Okay, Juan, let's stick with you because you as a chancellor have got to be thinking uh, long and hard right now about the beginning of the next academic year in Chicago. And I'm wondering how you think about, you talk about growing up in a white community that became a black community. So I'm imagining that it's been decades that you have been thinking about questions of equity and access. And I realized that this could take days to answer this question. So it's a challenge to ask you to be somewhat brief, but how are you thinking now in your leadership role at this moment about ensuring equity and access to education? Yeah. And let me just tell you that in the back of my mind, one of the things I'm thinking about in posing this question to all three of you is how are we thinking about education as a public good circa 2020? Um, what does that even mean when we think about equity and access? So let's, let's hear about your leadership right now as a chancellor. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate you asking that uh, question. I mean, I think at its core, it's about, you know, I, I think about some ways having a conversation with my mother and my grandmother. And what would I want to tell them about what I'm doing? Not just the, the title that I have, it's what are you actually doing? How is that congruent with your values? And I think for me, it's we've never had an orientation to equity at City Colleges. We've never been transparent about what our gaps are. It's one thing that we set out to do a couple of years ago to make sure that we were telling the world what the disparities were and to then make sure that each of our seven colleges built plans to close those gaps and that we make a commitment to doing so. And that's what we've done. It's about going out and gaining resources for students and making sure that you're distributing those resources in a way that is not equal, is oriented towards those students that need the resources the most. And then it's also about looking at your practices and saying, why are we doing this, right? We just launched in July the Fresh Start Debt Forgiveness Program. 21,000 students that used to be in our system that had a 2.0 grade point average or better. Some of them only need a course or two to finish college. And because they owe us a little bit of money, we've shut them out. <laughs> and so what we've said is, no, come on back. If you complete your degree 
we'll wipe out the debt. And to help you out, we've got financial coaching in place to make sure that you have a personalized financial coach because we know you ran into some financial challenges. But these students are stuck. Without a degree, they can't get a better job. Without a better job, they can't get a degree. And so it's sort of questioning ourselves what we're actually doing, I think, that's really important. And then it's making sure that the messages that are out there are the right messages. When, when Arnie was leading our public school system, he rightly led an effort to make sure that every kid in Chicago believed that a four-year college was an opportunity for them. We still want those students to know that four-year colleges are an opportunity for them. Absolutely because they are. But we also want them to know that there are lots of paths to get there. And there's a lots of other pathways if they don't necessarily see that as theirs. And so to honor all those pathways, I think, is a big part of equity. When I think about equity, I think about do we celebrate a student coming to a community college system just as much as we celebrate the kid going to Harvard or the University of Illinois? That, to me, means equity. Because I remember being the kid that graduated from community college and knowing what that felt like when People didn't see me um, in the same way they might have saw another student. Thank you so much for that, Juan. You said a lot there. Certainly, I'm not going to recap it all, but I just wanted to underscore your comment about distribution of resources. And distributing resources equally is not the same as distributing resources equitably. So your stories and examples of that, I think, really are, are valuable and important to keep in mind. I'm going to turn to Joan next with that question, mostly because, Arnie, you have the um, luxury now of not thinking about opening a school district at the beginning of this academic year. So you can, I'm hoping, wrap us up on this question about leadership, both from your perspective, maybe in Chicago and uh, in the U.S. Department of Ed. But first, Joan, let's turn to you thinking about opening the uh, University of Minnesota this this fall and how you're thinking about equity and access. I'm pretty sure Juan meant to say the University of Illinois and the University of Minnesota as top tier professional peers, not Harvard, but that was his mistake. I just want to point that out. <laughs> well, Arnie may push back. I mean, we can have all three, Harvard, Illinois, and Minnesota. How about that? But that's um, it. No more. That's right. That's the list. Uh, so sometimes I get very philosophical about the role of higher education in bigger social questions. And it is the kind of conversation that is often time-based or issue-based, depending on what's going on in society as a whole. But I occasionally, and have been of late, taking a step back from that and thinking about the origins of education at any level and why we as organized societies introduced public education into the social services that we provide. And if you look over time and at different political theory, uh, it's a very consistent analysis and theme around how being an educated person gives you the tools to make the decisions that you need to make about whether or how you participate in society as a whole. Do I want to have to stop at that red light? Do I want the privilege of voting and should I exercise it? How do I understand what I'm voting for? How do I discern so that society can advance? And there is this exchange between the things we give up in order to live in something that is organized and functional and whether we understand what we're giving up and how we can improve what we give up in terms of independence or liberty or freedom, depending on how you want to categorize it in exchange for all the amazing things we get by coming together as communities. And education is cornerstone to that. that. That's a rather ivory tower starting point for the conversation. But if we think about 
the fact that if you're not including everyone who would be making those choices and empowering every person to make those choices in an informed way, then it's not really a choice. And in order to make a choice, you need information, you need capacity to discern. And we can offer that capacity in a variety of ways. It begins long before kindergarten. If you look at any of the studies on, on how we develop as human beings, particularly within communities, K through 12, obviously, community college, technical college, college, research universities all play different roles in how you would provide the tools and mechanisms for making an informed choice. And if there isn't equity and access for everyone in whatever way suits them, as Juan said, then it's not actually a choice. And we aren't fulfilling our obligations as an entire society under the social contract. And we as educators or those of us who lead and run educational institutions have to keep that in mind. It's not necessarily the job of the individual in the classroom even, or the student who enters the classroom to be thinking of it holistically like that. But I do think it is our obligation to think of it that way. And if we aren't purposeful about it, then we just plug along and announce our successes and various and sundry amazing things with research and we teach thousands and thousands of students and look at these numbers and look at these accomplishments only looks at what is being done and not at what's not being done. And so we have to be purposeful and attentive and intentional about what's not being done or we're not doing what we came to exist in order to accomplish. Both you and Juan said something about transparency and what we're not doing well or what's not um, highly successful right now. And I think that's really something to underscore. Thanks a lot, Joan. Arnie. You came into your U.S. Secretary of Education position right after I returned to the university after being a high school principal, and I watched everything you did and was really excited about things like Race to the Top and the potential for it. And now you've had this fullness of time to look back on some of those really remarkable innovations, and I wonder how you think about equity and inclusion and access now with that fullness of time, you know, you're younger than me, so I'm not suggesting you're old, but I mean, you've had these big roles in Chicago and then in the Department of Ed, and now you can, you know, rest on your laurels at the Brookings Institution. <laughs> How are you thinking about these things? No, I wish I could. No, not, I think, well, I'll speak for myself, that for whatever <laughs> any of us have tried to do our entire lives, I've honestly probably never felt more inadequate than, than right now and never felt more sense of urgency and more sense of how far we have to go. So I don't think anyone on this on this podcast or elsewhere are sort of sitting back resting not on anything. I mean, happy to talk about successes. We can talk about those all day and pr proud of so much of what we accomplished. But I, I think um, what this pandemic has, has done and we have these multiple crises of a public health crisis, a crisis of systemic racism here in Chicago. I'm spending all my time focused on gun violence, a crisis of gun violence. And we know the kids and communities always most impacted when things are tough. And those are the communities that we're, we're talking about. And if any of us thinks that we've done enough to create equity, to create opportunity, we're kidding ourselves. Not that we haven't tried hard, not that we haven't done some really, really important things, but every one of us has to work harder, work smarter, work with more humility, work more collaboratively if we're going to create opportunity for the kids and communities that, that, matter, that matter the most. Thank you. Um Let's, let's stay with you, Arnie, and talk a little bit about civic engagement. So obviously, we're thinking a lot about that in this podcast series, in this time of the fall going into a general election. And in general, we're thinking, uh, as we think about a racial reckoning in this state or in this country right now, 
about the ways that our institutions are serving us well or, or not serving us well and what is our role and obligation in, in creating institutions that work. Joan used the expression, the social contract, and I think we're all thinking about that a lot. So what is the role of education in, in thinking about preparing people for the level of civic engagement and political participation that our democracy requires? And then maybe um, what are we doing well and not so well in education to prepare people for that kind of that level of civic engagement and political participation? I'll answer that if I can take a quick, quick detour, just sort of, you know, Please get do. it all reflective and trying to, you know, think through things. But I think all of us on this podcast are here because we believe passionately in education, in public education, and that and the ability of education to, to be the great equalizer and to create opportunity for, for Juan and his brothers and sisters that he, he could not be doing what he's doing today had those opportunities not existed. But if, if we're going to be real honest, you know, baked both into the K-12 system and the higher ed education system is extraordinary inequity. And I'll just give you, you know, two quick examples that I ran the Chicago Public Schools 90% of my students happen to be you know, students of color, minority children. 85% have it, happen to live below the poverty line. But we in Chicago received less than half the funding of our wealthier neighbors six or seven miles north of us along Lake Michigan in Wilmette and Wilmetka. And you think about the compounding impact of less than half the money each year for 14 years, pre-K, K, first through 12, where the children born with a silver spoon in their mouth, born on third base, get twice, more than twice as much resources as kids born into tougher situations. That's public education actually exacerbating the divide between the haves and have-nots. And because across the country, 90% of funding for public education, K-12, comes at the local level in the vast majority of communities across the country, again, baked into the very fabric of public education, is not just equal, which isn't good enough. Juan is so right, the goal isn't equal, the goal is equity. What we have is something far less than that. And we as, as a nation have not had the courage to fundamentally challenge that and to create a, a funding structure where the children who need the most get the best teachers, get the longest hours, get technology, get after school programs, get what they need. That's just one. Quickly on the higher education side, it's just funny when we talk about who our role models are or whatever. So much of the status forever in higher education is based upon who you exclude, how many people you don't educate not how many people you do include. <laughs> and you know, that's, you go into rankings or whatever it might be, you, the, the, more, the more students you reject, the more prestigious you become. <laughs> and something about that, again, is just fundamentally flawed. So until we're willing to sort of take on those kinds of structural issues, then for all of our talk about the power of education, the potential of education, which is real, we're still not close to doing what we need to do. Just on the data very quickly, my numbers aren't going to be exact, over the last 20, 25 years, good news, bad news, we have doubled the number of minority uh, students graduating from, from higher education. That's the good news. The bad news is we've doubled from like 15 to 30% of African-Americans and from like 8 to 15% for Latinos. And if we think, you know, that's good enough, do we want to sit here 25 or 30 years from now and saying we've doubled again and we're now at 30%? For Latinx students, we got to be much more ambitious than that. We have to want much more, and then to want to, to get better results, we got to behave in some very, very, very uh, different ways. In terms of civic engagement, um, there are wonderful nonprofits, groups like the Mikva Challenge here in Chicago that have done an amazing job of linking students to our democracy. And for me, education is never about I happen to be a Democrat, left or right, or about great education. We got great ideas coming from across the political spectrum. It should be the ultimate bipartisan or 
or nonpartisan issue. But our young people have to be engaged civically. They have to see the connection between what they're, you know, what they're learning and the larger world. Historically, young people feel their voice doesn't count, their vote doesn't count. Um, you know, desperately, personally hoping this election, we'll see uh, an outpouring of civic engagement that we haven't seen before. But we have to, in schools, intentionally do that. And I always say it's not just for the stars. We, I, I worry desperately about the high school dropout rate across the country because there's, you're, you're basically condemned to poverty and social failure. Lots of young people drop out of high school, not because it's too hard, but because they're bored. It's too easy. They don't see the relevance to, to the real world and where we can tie what's going on you know, in social studies, in history, to what's happening in, in real communities. Then our students understand why they're getting to school every single day and on a snowy day in Chicago and, you know, in January. And so the more we can do to actively engage, um, the better. The final thing I would say is I would love to see students graduate at 18 from high school they get a high school diploma in one hand and a voter registration card in the other. And that should just be the norm across the country. Thank you. Um, since Juan Arnie referenced you directly, let's turn to you. I'm sure you have thoughts about the, the question generally, but I also would ask if you, if you have any thoughts about a specific challenge that, that Arnie referenced. He said, if, if we want this, if we want this public good for all of our kids, we have to have the courage to challenge our systems. And I wonder what, what in your mind that might mean. So broadly, how are you thinking about equity in this context in your leadership role and civic engagement? But then what are the systems we have to change? What, what, you know, because we can say we want more for our kids, but what does that mean for us as citizens? Yeah, I, I think uh, there's certain a lot of systems change, but I think that we have to have mindset shifts too in order to make sure that those systems do in fact change. And one of the things I think about a lot is we do think about education sort of as an equalizer. I'm, I'm fearful that we think about it as a zero-sum game. If somebody else gets it, it's going to hurt my ability to gain a stronger hold in the economy and society. And I just don't believe that we should believe and that it is, in fact, that way. There's a way to uplift an entire society, to strengthen a broader economy, to have a greater engaged citizenry. And that means we have to be committed to a broader set of quality education for all students. And that means that you've got to change the investment mix. Where I sit too, that same inequity that exists in K through 12 education goes right into community college. So we're open access institutions. We take every student and our students are wonderful, but often they need even extra help. Our students are 60% likely to have been food or housing insecure in the last six months that was previous to COVID. Imagine what it is now. Our students, half of them are parents. They're struggling in the economy. And yet we've got fewer resources than many institutions, whether it's philanthropic or tax resources to actually work with. I think that in many cases, we have things upside down and we need to reorient them. And that's everybody. You have companies that only hire from 10 institutions, by and large, uh, of higher education. How are you going to get the best talent <laughs> in America if your source of talent is so narrow? And so we partnered with companies like Accenture that is now changing the way they do hiring, including students that are coming out of my system into that pipeline that they have created to some of the best jobs and the best companies, the company that exists here in Chicago. And that takes mindset shift. And so I think that 
some added focus as a society. And this is real hard right now. It's real hard right now because mindset shift requires our leaders to help provide the narrative. (laughs) We live in a time when the narrative is met with a counter narrative and it's an immediate thing. And I fear that the citizenry is going to disengage. And so we have to double up uh, on our efforts right now uh, in institutions like mine to ensure one of the things that we're stay engaged, one of the things we're doing at City Colleges, we are launching uh, anti-racism oversight committee within my institution. Even though five of my college presidents are people of color, half of my cabinet are people of color, half of my cabinet, more than half of my cabinet are women. We're very diverse. Our institution is 75% African-American Latino. We have over 35% African-American faculty. We are more diverse than most institutions, but racism is alive and well in our institution as well. And so we need to be active on the issues that our young people care about the most, even if we don't see it as primary to our mission. And in this case, I would suggest that rooting out racism is a primary thing to any institution's mission in the United States of America. There's no congruence between racism and the ideals that we have for the nation that we live in. And so I think that these are the things that we need to have leadership that leads in these areas and leads boldly and strongly, given there's competing narratives here. Thank you, Juan. It sounds like both of you are really pointing out that it's not enough to endeavor to be not racist. It's far more than that. It's being actively seeking to be actively anti-racist in some of the, in the work that we do in our educational institutions. Joan, your response to some of these comments and then the broader question about civic engagement. Uh, I can't say any better than Arnie or Juan did about how their inverted resources and inverted access and the consequences of that in terms of opportunity and equity. But I want to shift a little bit and talk instead about something that Arnie said, which is our dependence on young people to push the narrative. That's inverted too, but perhaps in a good way that we have a unique opportunity to steward because all social change If you look historically, and I mean across the world, across the globe, and across different moments in time, not just in the modern era, has come from the student voice and student activism and creating an environment, all of the components of which have been aptly described by my colleagues today. But then once they're on campus where they can express that activism, I think is a very important part of what all institutions of education provide, and in my case, higher education, that what we depend on for the verve and fervor in insisting upon change and accepting nothing less, we hope for from leadership, but history has taught us often comes from youth. And if we don't put them in a position where they can make us all uncomfortable, then we are unlikely to get there. And so I think a lot about our role as an institution and as in our case in the state of Minnesota as the research university of the state and how we need to be contributing to the success of K through 12 across the board, serving all of our communities, which are diverse and representative, but also so that once they arrive, they become that generation. We need them. And if we don't facilitate their advocacy and give them the tools to advocate effectively, we may not like what we see emerge from this time that we find ourselves in. 
We're going to stick with you, Joan, for this next question. I, I want to paint a somewhat dire picture, but I, I think it's a realistic picture. We are in the midst of a global pandemic. Each one of you are finding yourselves challenged to lead through ambiguity, which sometimes is harder than leading through either loss or successes. To, you know, when the most common thing we often have to say is, I don't know about what happens next. Um, we know that the pandemic was going to lead to a, a really an unprecedented economic downturn. We don't know how long it will last. We know that all of this is disproportionately impacting women, young women who are caregivers, and most certainly people of color in this country and underrepresented people in public spheres around the world. And we don't know exactly when it will end. If I were to say what, you know, what worries you, you'd have a long list. But what is an inflection point? What within this is causing us to do things so differently or question fundamental truths that we always thought, you know, we always thought higher ed or K-12 would be this way, but now it's not. What in within that is an opportunity or a series of opportunities that we ought to exploit now or think about using now such that we will change education going forward by making it more equitable or more accessible? The short question is, what can you find hopeful about this really difficult time we're going through right now? Joan? It is a really difficult time, and that is a grand question. I mean, that's a grand challenge, and it's arguably a question that we were, were or should have been asking ourselves. The pandemic just catalyzes the conversation. I mean, the, cat, the pandemic excavates a reality that existed before. There's, it's not new. It's just impossible to ignore uh, in, in light of everything that's going on right now. But I do think, I, I heard a, a a talk at one of our conferences that we all rolled our eyes at before and miss so much now the opportunity to be amongst colleagues in person. That was about 10 years ago. And I was a dean at the time talking about what would disrupt higher education. And, and the thought was it was technology. That was the, the argument of the day um, was how MOOCs and other reduction of barriers to entry that technology offered would fundamentally change what were perceived and arguably are very high barriers to entry that Arnie referred to earlier for higher education and all the opportunities that come with it. And I think one of the things that's come out of the pandemic that I think will stick is that a lot of the systems that led to that restricted access in both literal sense of the competing that you have to do to be admitted into the schools that create the most obvious levels of opportunity, and then the less obvious restrictions like money or like having gone through K through 12, which prepares you adequately, or having role models so that you know how to navigate these systems of admission and success once you're on campus, is that by virtue of the forced distance that the pandemic has created, a lot of things that we held as ultimate truths have been challenged and resolved in, in a matter of weeks. I can't possibly teach that way. I can't possibly admit a student who hasn't taken an SAT or an ACT, or even a grad student who hasn't taken the GRE or the MCAT. I can't possibly teach this until you have mastered that in this exact structure that we've always used of prereqs and layers and at the same time have really reflected on what it means to be an educated person what does that mean how are we preparing students so that they have maximum opportunities not just professionally but to have if we were to use sort of the old language ironically a life well lived as they would define it and so 
a lot of the structures that we put in place were because we thought or we assumed because it was the way it always was that this was what you needed in order to be prepared for success in all the ways that we would define that. And we were forced to wipe literally all of that clean, except for the basic content of whatever professor was offering to their student and some of the services that surround that, like especially these days, like mental health and career counseling and the other things that we do that Juan was referring to earlier in order to help everybody navigate through. And all of that is turned over. And I think some of it will stand back up again when the pandemic passes because some people want it, need it, prefer it, choose it. And we like choice. And that's been a theme in at least in some of our remarks today. But there are also apparently a variety of other ways that we now have to be open to accepting our possible that should widen access. And widening access is a cornerstone to equity. So I see us delivering what we do creating knowledge, opportunity, even the research side of what we do being broader in every way that it could possibly be. And, and us as stodgy being open to that broader perspective, that widening of the aperture. Thanks. It is pretty remarkable to see what higher ed has been capable of doing when it was forced to in March. It's mind boggling. And Juan, your reaction to that? Yeah, I, I think uh, certainly we've 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 seen that same level of progress at our institution that we're seeing across higher ed. But I think I want to focus on something that's additive, which is I think we're discovering the realities of the home environment in ways that I think we understood somewhat, but not to the depths that we're beginning to understand as a society now, and the impacts of that home environment. And here I talk about I think about myself in this context. There's there's no way. I shared a room. My three sisters shared a room. The way we grew up and the way many families grow up today, to do remote learning in that home would have been impossible or near impossible, even if I had a Wi-Fi and everything else that we needed to have in the home. I don't think I'd be here today. Maybe I would, right? I shouldn't think that way, but it would be hard. It would be very, very hard. And it's very, very hard for many families today. And so we are discovering something that we've known for a long time, that we need to improve the entire environment in order for that human being to flourish, right? We need to create those kinds of environments. A good and great society does that. That's the big reflective problem. I think more people are being exposed to that, teachers being exposed to that, leaders being more exposed to that and having to deal with that. And so I think that's a good thing. It's a terrible thing right now, and we have to face it. But somehow I think if we can take from that and believe and do something better in terms of those home environments, we can emerge from this a better society. Thanks. Again, that speaks to the whole question of equity. Treating everybody the same is not treating people equitably. Arnie, reaction? I don't want to sort of blow through what Juan talked about, erasing debt. That's a huge deal. And it's so, you know, basically when you, when you have a debt system that locks people out of further education, that's basically a poverty tax. And that's been baked into systems forever. And just as we lock people out of higher education because of debt, we lock them into jail, <laughs> we incarcerate them because they can't make bail. And so you sort of think about at both ends of the spectrum, just in the fundamental nature of our criminal justice system and our higher education system how those who are poor 
are structurally locked out of higher ed and locked into jail. You think about the impact of that over time and just having leadership like Juan's, you know, thinking about this stuff and challenging something that's been done forever. I don't know, you know, it's probably been the case for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. I don't, I don't know how long. Just taking something that we just take for granted and saying, no, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, sort of thinking very differently. Also, just on, on the you know Minneapolis Minnesota connection, it's really interesting. You know, Minnesota has obviously been a place where we're seeing a lot of huge social challenges. Just George Floyd's murder being the most recent one. Minnesota is a wonderful, wonderful city. I've friends of a couple of the mayors there, but Minnesota has had one of the largest achievement gaps in its K to twelve education system forever, forever. So there's this veneer of a beautiful place that is a beautiful place and. People are nice and kind, but underneath that service, there is massive inequities in educational opportunity. Now, I can't draw a direct line from those educational inequities to sort of the social challenges we have. But when you have that level of frustration and that number of people who are locked out of real opportunity because of the substandard education they got, that creates a level of frustration that sometimes manifests itself in some very different ways. So thinking about how we can just fundamentally challenge structures that are just sort of built into systems and doing something different, that takes some courage, it takes some leadership, it takes being willing to to think differently, but that's the only way if we're going to get better outcomes. And just as Juan is thinking about even more inclusive and opening more doors for folks who happen to have some financial challenges, where we have massive achievement gaps, and they're true in every school district, Minnesota being you know, particularly egregious, but Chicago's not immune. Are we really willing to do what it takes to try and close those gaps? And I, I, I try and call them actually opportunity gaps, not achievement gaps. We, we're willing to close those opportunity gaps. We'll see the achievement gap go away. Again, that's, just, that's the kind of leadership we need. For me, the goal is not to go back to where education was because normal wasn't good enough for far too many across the country. We have to reimagine. We have to reinvent. And if we have the courage to do that coming out of this, then a lot of good could happen. Um, I honestly am not convinced as a country, I don't know yet whether we have the courage to sort of take on those fundamental challenges that will enable us to catapult forward into a very different space. Thank you. I think that's probably a good place to end. You have um, talked a lot about both the, the dire situation that we're in in some regards. Also, you've given us a clarion call for the kinds of courageous change we need to see if we really want an education system that elevates and uplifts equity in a way that a a democratic society like ours needs. And I think that's fundamental theme of uh, the discussion with all of you. So Arnie and Juan and Joan, thank you so much for making time to be a part of this conversation today. Thanks for listening to today's conversation. If you'd like to learn more about the WBDC's Raising Up the Vote campaign and about the power of voting to drive women's economic empowerment, please go to our website, wbdc.org backslash raising up the vote. We hope you will join us in this important effort to raise up the vote. This movement reminds us that we can and should and indeed must pick up our banner today in 2020 and continue to enact necessary change as we participate in this year's election and other elections to come. Make sure to look for more conversations from Make Your Mark podcast series, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Women Voting Inequality, and don't forget to join the movement at hashtag raise up the vote. And finally, get out there and vote on November 3rd. The Women's Business Development Center is a nationally recognized leader in the field of women's economic development. 
We're committed to supporting and accelerating business development and growth, targeting women and serving all diverse business owners to strengthen their impact in and impact on the economy. For additional information about the WBDC, please go to wbdc.org. And thank you for listening.